Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, folks. Charlie Bazzino here. Join me for my Hunting for Killer show on March 2 at Roomba's Function Centre in Gisborne, just 40 minutes north of Melbourne. I'll be taking you on a unique and fascinating journey outlining my investigations from discovery of a body to some surprising conclusions. This presentation is not to be missed. Tickets available at trybooking.com and the ticket price includes a pasta meal and a complimentary glass of wine. Limited seats are available. Hope to see you there. In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts with a variety of fascinating guests discussing the human side and impact of crime, not only on their lives, but mine as well. My podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. If you find yourself affected by my subject matter, please contact Lifeline or any other support, service or person that you feel comfortable with. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and not everyone will agree with them. I understand that and I hope you do too. Thank you. He was chased by a police dog up a tree. He fell out of the tree, shot himself in the head with his own firearm. The bullet travelled around the front of his skull and out the other side, and it didn't phase him. He still wanted to fight the dog and the the dog. So he was that sort of guy. Cameron Duncan was part of a hand-picked team of Victorian detectives assigned to assist the Special Operations Group in assisting criminals Archie Butterley and Peter Gibb, who, with the aid of Gibb's secret lover, prison guard Heather Parker, escaped from the Melbourne Remand Centre in March 1993. Cameron's knowledge of Butterley and his modus operandi, his MO, was one of the main reasons he'd been handpicked. Butterley despised Cameron and only days before their escape had made a credible death threat to Cameron and his family. So upon Butterley's escape, Cameron's family had to be immediately evacuated to a safe house. Butterley and Gibb were career criminals having spent much of their life in prison for offences including armed robbery and manslaughter. They weren't brain surgeons and their escape plan was testament to that. It was doomed from the very beginning, ending with a policeman being shot, 
stealing that policeman's firearm, a motel being burned down in country Victoria and a shootout with the police. And the police won, with Gibbon Parker being arrested and Butterley dying in the shootout. It's never really, well, not really, it's never been proven how exactly Butterley died, whether by his own hand or maybe Gibb or Parker having some sort of involvement. But, you know, I'm guessing it doesn't really bother Cameron how he actually died. Cameron and his team received bravery commendations for their heroics in this crime, which is a story in itself, and I'll get Cameron to expand on that later. Cameron is very uncomfortable talking to me about his involvement in this crime and wouldn't have agreed to be a guest without me having spoken with his colleagues and receiving their go-ahead. Cameron is very humble and doesn't enjoy or seek the limelight. But through some help from his daughters, who happen to be uh, fans of mine or listen to podcasts, we've managed to have him agree to be a guest. So thanks, girls. (laughs) I owe you big time. Uh, Cameron's decorated career. It came at a cost, though, in many respects. His best mate, Gary Silk, was murdered, along with Gary's colleague, Rodney Miller, in 1998. And Cameron wants him to be acknowledged and remembered for his competency and bravery in so many investigations and arrests, not just for being shot in Cochrane's Road, Moorabbin. Uh, Cameron retired a few years ago and he's now enjoying more time than ever with his growing family, something that he missed out on for so long, too long, uh, but he's making up for lost time. So, Cameron, oh, I think I can call you Cam, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. And, again, thank those daughters of yours. They've done a good job. You're welcome, Narelle. <laughs> it's, it's good to be here. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you. So, Cam, can we go to the, um, the first thing I want to ask you? You were a decorated detective, but you're not really comfortable with that description, I understand. But you've got every reason to stand up and be congratulated and tell the world about your police career, but you choose to let others do that. Well, I've hounded you, I've pestered you, I've bothered you. I might even go as far as saying I've annoyed or harassed you, but I've got you here. How does it feel to be in the hot seat? It's um, it's it's. It's nice of you to describe me as, as such, Narelle, but decorated detective, I don't think so. If you think um, I received a command commendation for one job and I don't think that makes anyone a decorated detective if you've been one for 15, 18 years or in the police force for 25, 28 years. Yeah, I'd have to disagree with you, Cameron, because I was in the job for 27 and um, I never, ever um, did anything like you did, putting myself in such a dangerous position. And I think that that's what it's about, like the bravery that you showed. You put your own and the community, you put your own bravery, your own bravery, you put your own safety aside um, for the community in, in a huge way. And these people that you were capturing, they had shot a policeman. So, I mean, that just takes it to another level. Wouldn't you agree? Um, yes, yeah, I do. But um, yeah. it, it unfolded in a, 
it unfolded slowly. It's not something that you say, well, look at that, I'm going to jump into the middle of that. It's You just find yourself after or in a set of circumstances where you just make the next move and it's not something that you think about. It's not something that you're trying to show bravery or anything like that. It's just it's, there's no, really nowhere else to go when you're in those circumstances. Well, there is because... When you were uh, hand-picked for this, you knew that the trio had escaped. You knew how dangerous they were, particularly Butterly, because you'd had previous dealings with him. So it you could have said, I mean, yeah, there's probably not a lot of people that would say no, but you could have said, no, this man is, because we'll get to this, but you've said he Butterly is the most dangerous man you have ever had dealings with. So you did have a choice. So, uh, yeah, I, I suppose we could go round in circles and we could argue till the cows come home, but um, I think we have to acknowledge you are a decorated detective, Cameron, and clearly that sits uncomfortably with you, but not everybody gets a bravery award. I mean, really. Uh, uh, gendarme got accommodatory entry. I think a lot of people in the 80s remember a police horse getting accommodation, so, you know, morale. <laughs> oh, when you say it like that. <laughs> what did John Gendarme, what did he get a, he, I imagine it was a horse, um, what did he get a, an award for? Um, I'm not sure if they still have them, but uh, they used to have accommodatory entries in the Gazette every fortnight for people who had done um, good things, good works, brave things. Yeah. And John Darm, yeah. the police horse, died, so they gave him accommodatory entry and I think everyone who got one after that thought, well, yeah, I've been compared to a horse. <laughs> oh, dear me. Oh, you've thrown me. Oh, dear, that is too funny. Um, oh, God. You know, I remember... Would I remember Gendarme from, I reckon he was at the Academy. Um, he did something, he was oh, He was always the first horse, wasn't he, in like any of the um, the uh, police funerals and all that sort of stuff. He's um, He was pretty famous. Is he still alive, do you know? No, no, I think he passed away. I think he died in the 80s, yeah. wrong. Yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, okay, well, let's move on. Um, tell me what your proudest moment is in policing. Oh, first of all, how many years did you do? Um, um, I'd have to look back. I think I got I got my discharge papers from um, Christine Nixon. I think there was 28 years on that. Okay. It's a pretty good effort, I would have thought. And in that 28 years, uh, apart from, let's say, your bravery award, um, or maybe I shouldn't um, uh, say that. What is your proudest moment in 28 years of policing? Uh, I, um, one thing that myself and two other fellows from the major crime squad did, Kevin Headley and Peter Evans, but known since we were 16, um, we were suspended at one point in uh, 1992, charged with some serious offences, 
And um, during that time, we learned that a, two young coppers from Doncaster had been charged as well with a minor assault on a drunk they'd locked up and one of them took his own life. So oh, after we yeah. were no longer concerned with the prosecution brief, there wasn't much in there, mm. we decided to uh, get a lunch t- together of, of that with involving that surviving fellow and all the other guys that we knew that were suspended at the time. And then we, we got together a list of about 20 people, like from the armed robbery squad, drug squad, and suburbs, and we had a big lunch at the um, Railway Club Hotel in Port Melbourne and that young fellow from Doncaster was all of a sudden swamped with support and oh. he went on to beat his charges, of course, and and those lunches went on for some years. And so that, I think that was a really good thing. Mm. Oh, yeah, I've just, you know, there's so many um, police uh, let's call it for what it is, police suicides. Um, and particularly of late, I've just learned of one just last week. It, it's, it's, it's a tough job. And um, I imagine the shame, well, obviously the shame or the humiliation, embarrassment, whatever it be, of being charged with something. It just gets too much, well, obviously got too much for that young man but isn't it terrible that a, a job can uh, send you t- to that those depths of um, depression or depths of despair? But but what a um, a lovely legacy that you left by um, having that lunch and celebrating his life, and and as you say, supporting his colleagues' um, well welfare. God, what a what a tough thing! How did how did his that the colleague that um, survived? I was going to say, but do you keep in contact? Do you know how he is these days, or how long he kept in the job? No, I don't. I don't know. Well, I followed um, his trial. He went to for himself, obviously, okay. and um, the, well, I think it was at the county court, and um, it was a walk up start for for him, as they often are. The strength mm. of these mm. cases, often like show trials, and um, mm. no, I don't know. I don't know whether he stayed or, or, or I don't. I, mm. I haven't followed yeah. any further with him. Yeah, I think sometimes to remain in contact, some people can, and uh, I think you know I've been through uh, traumatic things in my career, and. There's people that I, that I will always have a connection with and a really strong connection, but when I see them, it really triggers me and I find that I actually can't see them. So I, I sort of I sort of get that. Um, what about your favourite time in policing and why was it your favourite time? Oh, it was all good. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, being suspended wasn't good, Ken. Oh, it wasn't so bad either. <laughs> <laughs> it was a year, year off on full pay um, with my two best friends at the time, yeah. uh, but, but they were never going to separate us. And, uh, that, that was all right. But, no, I really enjoyed uh, – I turned up to Fitzroy Police Station when I was only 19 and that was just a great environment to learn um, 
from the, the mm -hmm. tremendous sergeants we had there. It was a different town to how it is today. It um, was a tough working-class town. Um, then yeah. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I was at the, the BCI Dogs for a while, which was a lot of fun. I went to the um, my first spot in the CIB was at Flemington, which was really good. Um, that was right over the Wall Street period and the Flemington crew obviously were involved in Wall Street. The uniform brands were, were the hardest working uh, bunch of blokes you'd ever meet. Um, it was a lot of fun. But obviously the major crime squad I went to from there was probably the highlight um, to work mm. under a boss like Peter Spence, who was a real legend um, and was some of the funniest characters you'll ever meet, Dave Waters, Charles Dando, um, these sorts of blokes on good jobs, escapes, um, extraditions, um, good inquiries. My crew sergeant was Graham Arthur, who was a very good detective. Um, I still see him. Um, and after that, the prison squad for a bit. And I, I enjoyed being promoted too to uh, St Kilda uniform, uh, back to back to basics really, but um, being able to guide some of the young guys there. Um, many went on to do bigger and better things. Yeah, so it, it was all great. <laughs> yeah, you might explain to the listeners, tell us a bit about the BCI dogs because they may, um, I just want to explain, I think a lot, most people now will understand because we talk about the dogs a lot, but they are surveillance police that, you know, watch people and get evidence and um, sort of spying on them, I suppose. You know, they take videos of them somewhere or uh, take photographs and just sort of follow them to see what they do. But tell us about being with the BCI because there's a lot of people that won't understand what BCI is. Yeah, um BCI stands for the Bureau of Criminal Intelligence and they had a number of sections, technical and one tactical, and one was surveillance and they're called the dogs. And um, I was only there for about 18 months, but it was it was totally different to uniform work and totally different to detective work as well. But you're working for detectives, mostly crime squads, and they've got a target that they're interested in. They want to follow him, gather intelligence or evidence. And so you go out in a team of cars and follow them around and try not to get burnt, try not to get caught by them, try to photograph them and their associates. So that sort of thing was very exciting. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I've uh, worked on a couple of jobs where the dogs have got the evidence that we needed to be able to uh, convict really uh, an offender, it is the best feeling. But a lot of times I find that the dogs just seem to, well, a lot of time is passing time in a car, um, eating, pardon me, shit, eating, you know, Maccas and uh, hamburgers and everything, just waiting for somebody to move. It can take forever, but when they move, it's on, isn't oh, it? Oh, that's right. It, uh, and it, it, you go from nothing to 100 miles an hour. In a, in a space of 30 seconds. Yeah. But you might, yeah. a, a classic job that you might do with the dogs is some, for someone like the Major Crime Squad where they're looking for an escapee from jail and they might set you up on his girlfriend or his brother 
whatever, and you might just watch them for a week or two weeks, and then you might see the offender arrive. And so you communicate that to the detectives, and before you know it, they're doing the intercept right in front of you, or the SOG are doing the intercept right in front of you, and it's it's um, the culmination of uh, great planning by the detectives initially, and and by I guess the expertise of the of the um, surveillance people. But it's also exciting stuff, isn't it? Like, oh, oh I miss those days, Cam. Oh, do yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you watch it on TV and it's never the same, but you, you just can't oh. ever think about what you've done too. Oh, yeah. There's something about that adrenaline rush and, oh, gee, I miss it. There's nothing quite like it, is there? Hey, you were talking about uh, working at Flemington. Uh, with the Flemington crew and boy, and Wall Street, that was um, a really um, volatile time to be in policing because I joined in 87 and the Flemington crew were, you know, uh, oh boy, they were, they were hot then. Um, so did you, uh, were you in, ever involved in any arrests or anything with the, uh, the Flemington crew? Um, I had some involvement. I went to a, one of the last armed robberies they did before Wall Street occurred was at a bank in, in Flemington. I went to that and they had fired a shot at one of the uh, Flemington CIB vehicles and hit it in the boot. And um, that was pretty full on. We didn't know who they were at the time. Then Wall Street occurred and before we knew it, our little office at Flemington was overrun with task force detectives and major crime and armed robbery oh, yeah. blokes and we were just doing raids, raid after raid with those guys. Probably where I got the idea to go to the major crime squad, I think. Oh, yeah, because uh, – and you were talking about the squads. There's something about the squads. It's just – it takes challenge, uh, um, challenging to a whole new level because you are dealing with the like, – like you're saying – you know, you're dealing with people that have shot people, shot at police, and, I mean, it, it's so rewarding, but, gee, it's challenging. You know, the jobs you get are really, a lot of them are really high profile and, um, yeah, it's, so, I just loved it. Oh, God, talking about it, I tell you, I, I could go back to it tomorrow. Well, I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't jump a little fence these days, let alone a, a six-foot one, but, I used to be able to. Oh, it's great. <laughs> Even in a yeah. skirt. It's great when you're 30, I think, and I'm 61 now. <laughs> but when you're when you're 30, between, say, 25, 35, it was just ideal. You were at the peak of your uh, physical uh, powers, I guess, and it was just so interesting all un- unfolding in front of you. You look back on it with you watch oh, the Underworld yeah. shows and you say, oh, yes, you know, I saw that or I knew that person. But at the time, yeah, yeah. it's happening in, in your future, so it, it unfolds yeah. in front of you, and it just becomes um, something that you just do every day. And yeah, yeah. second nature, mm. yeah, yeah. Um, so apart from the doomed escape and shootout that we'll talk about shortly, uh, can you share with us um, another investigation which has stayed with you for whatever reason? Um, yeah. Uh, there are other escapes, um, other, I guess, bigger inquiries, but one is a classic 
Gary Silk story I love to tell you. Oh, it's, Please uh, do. Mm-hmm. It's just a funny one. He's a real character, Gary, and we're at the prison squad and he, he got a file, one of those chief commissioner yellowback files to go out to um, Pentridge and he asked me to come with him. And we drove all the way out there. I didn't even know what the job was. We talked about football because that's all he talked about. And um, we, had, we went to the interview room at, at Pentridge and um, in there was Julian Knight and um, Gary had this job and we walked in there and Gary did his classic Clint Eastwood expressionless face. He's <laughs> insignificant man, wanted to shake our hands and he got a bit disappointed. But uh, Gary asked him what his problem was and he said, well, the back half of my Saturday newspaper is going missing every, every weekend. And I've uh, complained to the Attorney General and wanted to investigate it. So uh, Gary looked at him and listened to his story for a little while and, and he said to him, well, um, Mr Knight, that's not even worth anything. That's, there's no value you can place on the back half of a newspaper, so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you a bill for two detectives and a police car. And then <laughs> and we walked out and I, I, I must have broken a couple of ribs walking out just laughing at how he handled that, but that's just, that just the classic way I used to do stuff. <laughs> you now you can't be serious that Julian Knight would actually lodge a complaint, a formal complaint about not getting the back half of the Saturday paper. Really? Oh yeah, yeah. He, he. You know they've they've said he's a vexatious litigant, but that takes it to a whole new level, doesn't it? Well, at, you'd be surprised at the prison squad. You get letters written by prisoners who got nothing better to do. They're there forever and they complain about all sorts of things. And I would have thought that the um, the minister responsible or the attorney general would just send them back saying we're not wasting time on this. But no, everyone gets sent to the prison squad or the, the prison's own oh. investigative section and they all have to be looked at. It's a waste of everyone's time. But I guess, you know, if they've got a complaint that they're being mistreated or assaulted or something like that, it's got to be looked at. Oh, of course it does. That's that's a whole different story, but missing a back part of it. <laughs> yeah. I was going to mention that at, at, his, oh. at his funeral um, and, and apologise to Mr Comrie because at the time customer service was the big thing <laughs> in the job in the mid-90s. Yeah. But I, now I got talked out of reading that out from the... At the funeral. <laughs> oh, what a shame. Oh, people would love to hear that story. Well, you've told it now, Cam. So, <laughs> and we will get to um, Gary Silk shortly, but I wanted to go back um, and if you could tell us a bit about Archie Butterley and what type of person he was, because I read somewhere that. And as I said before, you said he was the most dangerous man you'd ever had dealings with, and you'd obviously had your fair share of dealing with dangerous criminals. So, what was it about him that made you feel that way? I, I'm not sure I was quoted correctly about the most dangerous, but he was certainly, yeah, okay, certainly yeah. very dangerous bloke. Um, we came upon his name. Um, my crew were investigating an aggravated burglary before they happened every second day. And Doncaster that was pretty nasty and um, was a lot of money involved. And we had no idea who who 
who was responsible. It was a man and a woman, and it turned out to be Archie Butterley and his girlfriend, Marta Cassotti, and they were both Perth criminals who'd come over to do that um, specific job. And so researching his background, which is all in Perth in Western Australia, he um, had a shocking reputation over there for a hatred for police, for violent crime, manslaughter, armed robberies, that sort of thing. Mm. And interestingly enough, I never actually met him because whilst we were investigating him and Marta for the aggravated burglary, he was arrested for something else out in the western suburbs. He, uh, from memory, he went out there to shoot someone. Um, he was chased by a police dog up a tree. He fell out of the tree, shot himself in the head with his own firearm. The bullet travelled around the front of his skull and out the other side and it didn't phase him. He still wanted to fight the dog handler and the, <gasps> and the dog. So he was that sort of guy. Wow. Yeah. Dumbass. Well, you know, you say, I say dumbass, but he managed to, you know, stay out of jail for a little bit of his life, I suppose, but. Not a lot. Yeah, as I said before in my intro, he was um, no Rhodes Scholar, was he? Um, tell me about that that moment that you learned that he'd escaped. This is, we'll go back to Peter Gibb and Archie Budley and uh, Heather Parker uh, escaping from the Melbourne Remand Centre. So how did you feel the moment you learned that he had escaped? Because only days prior you were um, made aware that he'd threatened you and your family and it was no idle threat, was it? It was a serious threat. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, when, we were, when we were looking at that aggravated burglary in Doncaster, um, he was on remand at the time and Marta Cassotti was, was out and we, it was a, a long investigation that took about four months and we had his phone off at the remand centre and on one occasion we went to Marta Cassotti's flat in Punt Road and did a search warrant there looking for looking for evidence and um, after that was done she went and visited him. No, sorry, she phoned him and she complained about the, the um, search and she said to Archie that I treated her a bit harshly, which is uh, mm-hmm. just a terrible thing to say about someone. But um, mm-hmm. Archie wasn't very happy with me and he said, oh, Cameron Nugget, I'm going to kill him and I'm going to kill all his family and that sort of thing. I didn't pay much attention to it because he was in jail. Um, we had a laugh about it. Um, but, yeah, he broke out a couple of weeks later and um, that that changed things a bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I'd, yeah. I'd sent my family down to uh, Phillip Island and um, and then we we worked for that week, next week, to uh, recapture them. Mm-hmm. Which uh, I suppose leads us right into um, the actual, you know, what happened. So he's threatened you, um, you've found out about it, um, you've um, sort of, haven't taken it too seriously because, as you say, he's inside. However, he then escapes. So that's a whole new level again. Um, But 
your family's safe now. They've gone down to Phillip Island. Uh, tell us about, in as much or little detail as you feel comfortable, about that escape and uh, the capture. Sure. Um, it's 30 years ago this year. Um, so I don't have notes, but I remember. I, I don't expect you to have notes. That's all right. <laughs> I remember a Greg Dowd coming to my place and telling me that what had happened and we went into town and, um, and Greg got busy putting a bit of a task force together. There was no major crime squad, as you know, who would normally have done that. So it was, and there really wasn't a replacement either. So it was, it was just some guys from the prison squad, um, Graham Arthur, who, who knew my, Archie as well, had been my crew sergeant. He came from the homicide squad, Mick Engel from organised crime and some fellows from the special response squad, uh, Peter Signorotto. And we, we just took over an operation room, put up a whiteboard and started working on their, on the, the various crime scenes that they'd left behind. And um, we went to Heather Parker's place to see whether she was uh, involved in the escape or whether she was, in fact, a hostage. That to be decided pretty early. Uh, and then it just unfolded then over the next week. And what unfolded? Well, we knew that we knew that one of them, probably Archie, was injured because they had a bad car accident just uh, half half a K from the remand centre where they crashed into a guardrail. Um, they got out of the car and hijacked a passing motorcycle. The motorcycle with them on board travelled along and they were intercepted by um, poor old uh, Warren Trelaw and his offside shunt plug and um, Warren Trelaw was shot by Archie because he's so aggressive and he was he's, mm. and yeah, hates police, police as you said tooled yeah. up so yeah. Heather had left the yeah. firearm in the car for him um, and then they got away from there and they swapped a vehicle with Heather down in Seaford and then they headed out, out east and we heard that they were treated at the uh, Latrobe Valley Hospital and that's when we learned of the, really the extent of Archie's in, injuries, which weren't just a broken ankle, but he had some internal injuries and he was bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, he was using tent. He'd broken his he'd he'd broken his ankle uh, jumping out of the remand centre, right. hadn't he? He hadn't started off no, well. That's right. mm. But he had, he had worse yeah, injuries yeah. from the car accident, and um, he was using okay. tampons yep. to s- stem the blood flow. So he was not yeah. in good shape. And the, we had some idea then where they were going, in New South Wales or, or up to the mountains, and then we heard that the pub burnt down at Gaffney's Creek. So we went up there. I was in the car with Graham Arthur, again, the sergeant, and Gary Silk and myself, and we went up, checked the pub out, and sure enough, all the, the descriptions and from all the people in the hotel um, led us to believe it was them. We stayed the night in the Jamison Hotel and in the morning a fisherman discovered the wanted vehicle, which was a Pajero, parked near the river and covered in, in brush. So we attended there and 
around about that time, Archie opened up with his um, weapon and the SOG were there too at the same time, but um, the three of us, there were others, but the three of us, I couldn't remember, Gary, um, Graham Arthur and myself, we, we had shotguns and we basically hid behind gum trees because this um, this machine gun, it was a, a CAR-15, which is a shortened version of an M16. It was very loud. Oh, goodness. sounded like it was three feet away. You couldn't see anything in the bush. It was probably about 20 feet away. And it was uh, just basically hiding behind this this tree until the, the SOG engaged him. And that went on for about, I guess, 20 minutes or so. There was a lot of rounds being fired and it was very loud and we were either hiding behind the tree or, or trying to dig a trench in the ground. Um, hmm. And then uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, Narelle, you can pull me up if you want. No, no. No, no, keep going. So you're behind uh, the, uh, yep. the tree and uh, Archie is um, firing off rounds and rounds. The SOGs uh, are shooting. Yep. Are you shooting or are you you're letting the SOG shoot? I wasn't so much letting them shoot. But, um, I, I <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's how yeah, ridiculous. I couldn't, I couldn't see. I would, have, <laughs> I would have fired my shotgun in his direction, but it was just – yeah. Within a foot in front of your face, it was just bush. It must have been like fighting in Vietnam or something. You, just, you, oh, just couldn't, you couldn't okay. see, you could hear them, but you couldn't see the thing. And um, But we did see, God, because uh, there was a river between us and Archie, and we're conscious of the river to our left. And mm. we saw, I think it might have been Peter Signorotta who first saw um, Gibb and Parker in the river. So it just so happened to be Graham and myself who went into the river to to arrest them because they were trying to sneak out of the scene. Yeah, but you wouldn't have known at that stage that, like, there was a huge possibility, probability, that they would have been armed. That's right. Um, we didn't That's know. Right. That. I mean, there's th- th- that, that in itself, Cam, like, I, I know... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You say that you do it automatically. And a lot of people, like, that is just brave to the, the oh, I can't think of anything braver. Like, and these are not just, you know, they've stolen a little old lady's purse. You know, these people are murderers. Uh, and they've been prepared to murder a policeman like Warren Trelaw. And you just, I mean, you say it very casually, oh, we, you know, went to the river to arrest him. But, boy, that is, that's incredibly brave. But anyway, I, I know, again, we could argue about that and discuss that till the cows come home. Okay, so you go to the river, you see them, and you and um, Graham Arthur are, uh, go to arrest them in the river. Did you have a bit of a fight in the river? No, or? they. Well, they had about three or four shotguns pointed at them, and and, and various um, other weapons mm. from the detectives who were there, mm. not just the two of us. Mm. So if if mm. if Gib had been um, armed or Heather, or, it would have been a, a different result, I'm sure. But they weren't. Um, as soon as Heather saw us, she jumped. Onto, um, onto Peter Gibb to shield him from us. And um, so at that point we thought, well, they're pretty safe. So we walked out and, and grabbed them and dragged them to the riverbank. And, uh, but, of course, the, the shooting was still going on between the, the SOG behind us and Archie in front of us. So we had to hold those two offenders down in the ground um, and we were down in the ground. And, uh, and it was a glorious sight to see a helicopter come up behind us, F-490, and another half a dozen guys in black rappel out of the helicopter run straight past us. One of them stopped to uh, truss Heather up in front of me, which is good because I didn't, I wasn't able to. And, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then we waited for it all to, to finish, which took about another mm. Half hour or so, and then um, Graham and I obviously we had our respective um, prisoners. We um, organised a transport to the Jamison Police Station. Um, I, I stayed with Heather. Um, Graham had Gib. We took him into the Jamison Police Station separately. I think it's a very small, small police station. I put Heather in a. 
change room, or it's actually a closet, broom closet, with a policewoman to get her out of her gear and into a, an FSL suit. Uh, you know, they made a movie about that and um, they had me uh, undressing her in front of eight or ten detectives in the muster room, which I thought was mm. pretty ordinary, plus the... Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be very happy happy with that. No, I wasn't. Yeah. No, I wasn't choice of the, uh, happy with the choice of actor either. I thought, you know, Matt Damon or someone could, could have done a better job for me. <laughs> Who was the actor? <laughs> some, I don't know. <laughs> some weed, some yeah. weedy yeah, looking nerd. Look like a detective. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we pride ourselves on our appearance back then. Yeah, you did. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you used you used to command quite a, a um, an audience. The guys from the major yeah. crime or prisons yeah. or whatever, your yeah, detectives. Oh, yeah, that'd be harrowing oh, yeah. to have somebody yeah. some, as I said, some yeah. weedy little nerd. And he wasn't wearing the the um, short sleeve white shirt or the black tie <laughs> or the black tie <laughs> with, the, with the garlic stains on it. That just wasn't. It just, it wasn't realistic at all. No wonder it didn't want to lower you. <laughs> then, we, um, then, we, then we loaded them on the helicopter with some SOG blokes for companion, companionship and we flew to Melbourne. And that, that was interesting too because all the way I'm flying back to Melbourne, I've been I'm covered in sweat and water and stuff and I'm, yeah. I'm planning this interview in my head, as you do, you know, when you arrest yeah. someone. Yeah. And it was just a complete waste of time. I should have just enjoyed the flight. Why was it a complete well, waste of time? When we got back to the homicide squad, um, fresh detectives are going to do the interview, obviously, but I didn't think of that. So I just gave someone a briefing about um, what had occurred. Um, I had a couple of cans of VB and was sent off to see the psychologist. And <laughs> 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 well, that was it for me. <laughs> Yeah, thank, thanks for that, Cameron. Off you go and we'll go from here. Yeah, well, that's oh, the best way to do it, seriously. I mean, you wouldn't want to do the interview yourself. Oh, wouldn't you? I would. No, I'll stay tight. Yeah, well, that's a yeah, good point. Um, can we go back a little bit? Tell us a little bit about Heather. What was, uh, like, you're um, sort of looking after her, you're in charge yeah. of her. What was her demeanour like? Oh, uh, other people would describe her as a thing. <laughs> she was awful. Yes. She, um, she didn't want to stay on the ground. She didn't understand that she might get shot. She lifted her head up. She kept looking at us and abusing us and, and, really? and suggesting yeah. we were going to take her up the road and shoot her because the police had been shot and all this stuff. Um, yeah. And, she was, and I remember in the back of the car, she, she said one thing to me. She said, you know, we've had a lot of fun this week. I thought oh, what an inappropriate thing to say, but um, yeah, she had. We've had a lot of fun yeah, this week. No remorse, not one little bit of remorse. It, the movies painted her out to be this poor thing that was uh, taken advantage of by um, by a criminal, Peter Gibb, just for the escape yeah. purposes. But it was a lot more than that. She was a she was not a very nice person, and. And she wasn't just taken advantage of. I mean, they stayed together. When 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 she was released from prison, he picked her up in a limousine. They stayed together and had two children. So um, 
that she was just an inappropriate person to be a prison guard. You wonder how she ever got through the system, although I have uh, spoken to prison guards before on my podcast and uh, I've learned that they have um, an eight-week training program, eight weeks to be dealing with the type of people that they are. It seems very, very inappropriate. Most of them, in my experience, being at the prison squad where you went to prisons daily, they were really good people um, and they knew their mm. They knew their job. Um, it's a job I wouldn't do. It was depressing enough just being at the, at the prison squad and having to go to prisons most days, but they obviously did their whole shifts there and um, weren't paid enough for it. Um, no. You know, funny you say that about going to prisons and I've only been to um, prisons a couple of times to interview uh, somebody and... I found them so depressing. Uh, I hated going. I felt obviously also very vulnerable, uh, a little bit frightened, you know, because um, you're walking, like you've got a couple of guards with you, but, you know, walking through to get from A to B or whatever. But it made me feel so sad. Oh, they're like, and I know there's people in prisons that uh, need to be there, but they're like caged animals. Oh, I just I hated it. So I, I get what you mean about hating to go to prisons. And like you say, probably nearly every day because you're with the prison yeah. squad. Yeah, we, I think we went to every prison in the state for various things, complaints, uh, some investigations into the prison guards themselves. Um, there's since they built all the new prisons and privatised them. There's nowhere near as much trouble as there used to be, which is a is a good thing. People don't escape anymore. Um, they used mm. to escape every few mm. months, so it's a much better system now. Mm. Uh, going back to Heather, you're right about the media portrayed her as this vulnerable uh, woman that had you know fallen head over heels with this criminal. Um, but from what you're saying, she was not. Uh, well, she probably was vulnerable in a way, but yeah, she wasn't um, a nice person. I I would have always thought, uh, without you having told me that, I would have thought that uh, not this poor woman, but that she'd been manipulated and um, I don't know, targeted. I suppose by Gibbon, in a way, she probably was, but. As you say, like to say those sort of things to you and, you know, what a fun week it's been. Like that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, she was a wow. um, not, not a class act, Heather. I mean, even when they were living together years later, she was charged with a serious assault on, on a woman, put her in hospital for a week because uh, she suspected Peter Gibb had been in a relationship with her. So, you know, she was, um, she was no better than the people that she guarded. Gee. Um, with all of this, did you ever feel like like walking away after that investigation? And I, I suppose I'm pretty sure that uh, you've experienced your fair share of tragedy and trauma in the job. 
which like we did in those days, we just buried how we felt and just carried on from one job to the next. You go back to the office, like you say, you know, you go back, um, uh, here you go, go and see the psych and then the next day you're probably back at the prison squad or major crime doing whatever, you know, on to the next job. I suppose emotionally speaking, were there aspects of this investigation uh, which uh, affected you and which, I don't know, maybe you didn't want to acknowledge or it maybe manifested itself later on in your career? Well, not at the time. It was all uh, it was all pretty exciting and, yeah, I guess you, um, you had, had a lot of follow-up to do. You had to appear at the Camille hearing in the trial and the um, inquest into Butley's death, those sorts of things. So it was a lot of work to do and there was also a lot of support from the people that you were working with. Everyone was of a like mind. And all the people on that whole floor, the 11th floor at, um, at St Kilda Road, it was the um, robbery squad and the major crime. And everyone was always supportive of each other. There was... You really banded together. Yeah, and that was just, it wasn't a planned thing. And that's just the way things went. Yeah, so I, did, I, I didn't um, consider leaving over that. Um, I... I did leave the prison squad after a bit because it, it was a bit depressing. Um, I'd, I'd never chosen to go there or sent there, mm. but I did choose to go to Pran CIB um, for a, a, a few years. I thought that would be totally different to, say, Flemington CIB because it was a different town. You know, Chapel Street and yeah. all those good yeah. places to go to. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I moved on without any problems from there. Oh, okay. Um, so years later, uh, in 1998, uh, your best mate, Gary Silk, and you've spoken about him a lot in this podcast, you, you obviously worked with him a lot, but he was your best mate and he was uh, murdered whilst on duty. I suppose there's many police who reach a point in their career where they just realised they can't or don't want to continue. Did you feel like that walk? Did you ever feel like walking away after Gary's murder? No. Again, it was there was so much pulling together of all the people at St Kilda, uh, St Kilda CIB, and all the guys who knew him from the crime department, and uh, we got to meet his brothers, Peter and Ian, and um, his parents, and. Um, it, multiple functions and um, remembrance services and those sorts of things. You just got swept up in that as well. Um, yeah. Uh, was, I guess these things do build up, um, the various critical incidents, not just that major one, but, you know, even the smaller ones when you're in uniform, you might go to a, a SIDS death or a, a suicide. Um, you certainly go to a lot of them in the CIB. Um, rape victims, they, they all build up. And I guess by the time you're 50, it, it does, yeah. uh, well, I've since learned that it does accumulate. And, um, and I've got people close to me who don't understand that, I don't think. Uh, but, yeah. yeah, it does. I think it happens to everybody, no matter who you think you are. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think you're right, Cam. I think there's only so much uh, that you can deal with, and as you get older, I I don't think you cope 
emotionally as well because, as you say, it is a build-up and it, it gets to the point where you think you're going mad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I've had a bit of that. <laughs> my, my family will tell you that. Um, yeah, yeah, haven't we all? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's really good because I mean, people sometimes laugh at the concept of camaraderie and, and I think that police departments all around the world have been trying to break that thing down because they see it as... Uh, a lead into corruption, but that that sort of camaraderie keeps everybody sane. Because and, and these yes. days, especially because those same comrades talk about those things now, whereas they didn't talk about them before. So I can have lunch now with um, ten guys from all sorts of different offices, St Kilda sergeants or um, a bloke from the robbers or the majors, and and they're happy to talk about. Or they drink too much, or they um, they take this medication now, or but in a laughing way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. everyone seems to support each other, and not deliberately. It's just the way things have. have yep. Well, we've all moved along and got much more mature. But I think the important point there is that at least you're talking about it. Whether you're laughing about it or, I don't know, having a tear about it, but at least you're talking about it and you're not suppressing it or, uh, I don't know, avoiding it or not talking about it, I think that's got to be a good thing. And do you find, are you good at talking about it with your mates? Yeah, yeah I am. Um, my family, uh, wife is still in the job. She's got six yeah. months to go. Um, yeah. Yeah, we all talk about it when when it's it needs to be spoken about, and no one is looked down upon because they might have had an issue, or they're taking an antidepressant, or um, anything like that. And, and in fact, now people are cutting back how much they drink compared to how much we used to drink thirty years ago. So that's everyone's looking after themselves. I think these days, or oh, people of my age, that is. Yeah, 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 I couldn't agree more. I think you start to realise there's no shame in, well, I say no shame, isn't it funny? Uh, I'm fine with telling people about my PTSD and everything that happened, but you know what, I still feel a little bit, a little bit ashamed or I don't quite know what the word is, uh, that I take medication because I've always, uh, I always prided myself in, oh, you know, I don't take um, medication for anything. And then I have to take medication for my mental health. And I found that I still feel a little bit, um, yeah, ashamed. Isn't that terrible? Like we take a, a, a pill for a headache or a, I don't know, a sore toe or something. But why do we? or why do I, and I think there's a lot of other people like me, why do we feel so almost defeated that I have to take a pill to feel better? But it's been my saviour. I fought it for years not to take medication. Well, I, it's not just coppers. I, it's people in the community, the uptake of um, antidepressants and um, yeah. those sorts of medications yeah. is increased for everybody. It's not just not just for us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, so when you decided to retire, 
Was there a specific reason or incident where you thought, I'm done, I can't do this anymore? No, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was done. Um, I, would have, mm. I would have been happy to, to keep, keep going, but I didn't think I was going to get any further promotion-wise. Um, and Did you want a promotion? Um, oh, yeah, I wouldn't have minded, but it um, wasn't to be. Okay. yep. But at the same time, uh, my family circumstances were that I had two young boys and my wife was starting out as a detective and to give her the opportunity to do that, the best way was for me to to um, uh, to, to be at home because there was one shift where we both worked on a an Easter Monday and um, there was no, you, you couldn't offload the children to anyone. The crease wasn't open. You couldn't get the day off. It's, it was just sometimes it's impossible. Um, uh, on that occasion, I, I, I sent an email to Christine Nixon because she encouraged that at the time. Mm-hmm. And I said, what do I do in these circumstances? And her reply was, good luck with that. <gasps> <laughs> yeah, no. you know, I, like, I think, I don't know what she meant by that, but um, I think that from then on I was like, oh, well, I'll, I'll I'll take this opportunity to to look after the, the boys, and that was that. That was one of the best ten years of my life. To raising two young boys, uh, well, my wife was down around a lot, but I'd, I'd take them to kindergarten mm. and do all those sorts of things. It was it was great. Yeah, yeah. How long ago did you retire? Uh, Two thousand and five. Oh right. For some reason, I thought it was only in the last couple of years. No, no. no. Oh, I take my hat off to you, Cam. I, you know, for for uh, giving your wife an opportunity to to experience some of the great experiences that you had, uh, and to look after two boys. You know, like you completely turned your roles around. How good it, and and look at the at what that has given you. It's been great. That's that's been really yeah. Good. Wow. Um, it's only recently, and can you take us back with your the situation with Peter Gibb, Archie Butley and uh, Heather Parker? It's only recently that you actually received a bravery award for your, what I can only describe as heroics uh, on that day. Why and what took so long and what did the award mean to you? I, I'm, I'm not... 100% sure on why it took so long. I was only a senior D at the time, so I'm not, I'm not um, privy to all the politics, but I I can only assume that we this task force was hastily put together. We didn't really have a structure. We didn't have an officer. And generally, I, I guess in those circumstances, an officer would be the one that would push any recognition forward. And, yes, and, they would. You're right. They'd write um, the report. You know, good work performed by yeah. blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. So that, yeah. That obviously didn't happen, and um, that that really wasn't any big deal at the time. But later, my understanding is that when Graham Arthur retired, he he, he put in a report. He was a superintendent. He put in a report to to ask why that hadn't occurred, and a job was given to Greg Bowd. It's, Inspector at the fraud squad, and he looked into it, and he discovered that um, even uh, Warren Trelaw and 
he hadn't been um, recognised properly. He got a Chief Commissioner Certificate. He had that upgraded to a Victorian Star or the Police Star Award. Other people um, yeah. uh, in the community, the, the prison guard that followed in the in the chase vehicle, the taxi driver, the, all these people were then recognised as well. So it wasn't just us. Okay. Yeah, it was a, it yeah. was a more um, it was it was a, a big effort by obviously by by Greg and and he had to he had to address the honours and awards committee and, and come up with pr- proper reasons why these things should be done and it was eventually done. So um, I'm, I'm quite happy with it. And that was, that took 30, well, you just said it's 30 years ago this week or something, uh, did yeah, you? Yeah, six months ago we got got an award. Oh, okay. But, um, it took 30 years and I don't think it was because the department would be ignoring something they just weren't aware of it and um yeah they, they became aware of it when greg did his report and it went through the honors and awards and and they're quite specific on, on what they determined is is right or wrong and they determined that we we would get um and this is the whole crew not just graham and i there was a yes seven or eight people who got the same award including gary silk Posthumously. Wow. And what actually was the award, Ken? Well, I'd never heard of it before, but they called it a command commendation. So it was a commendation from the Assistant Commissioner of Crime, which is the Hill, uh, uh, from Crime Command. So it was a, an award from Crime Command to detectives who were there. Okay. Uh- I'm not taking it away from anybody, but I would have thought that that would have um, been a, you know, a bravery award by the government, not just by within Victoria Police, or have I got that wrong? Um, I don't know either. (laughs) Yeah, no, fair enough. Determined by the Honours and Awards Committee that that was the appropriate award, and um, I'm, I'm happy with that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And I, and I was just, and my last question in relation to that was, and what does that award mean to you? Well, it was I was well out of the job, but it was an opportunity to take my children and my, some of my family to the new headquarters, which I'd never been in, very flash, and um, mm. particularly my my daughters, uh, who. Uh, were only born in the 90s and my sons who were born in the 2000s they were able and and never seen me work of course and um, they were able to come along and and be part of the big production and uh, photographed and all that sort of stuff so I think they got something out of it and I got something out of it because they did. Yeah of course they just obviously saw what, um, you know, how brave their dad had been and what he'd done. I think it's recognition. Yeah, that's that's lovely that you got so much out of it, but also for, for the kids. Um, how are you finding retirement? Oh, well, actually, no, that's a silly, not I shouldn't say a silly question, but you've been uh, retired now for a long time, so. No, retirement's good. I'm just waiting for my wife to... Um Finish up the last six months at Frankston CIB. Yeah, Alan Ben's yeah. at a 
and then we might be able to um, do some travelling like everybody else is doing. Yeah. Yeah, you deserve it, Cam, you and your wife. Uh, Look, I've got to say uh, thank you. Uh, Thanks for keeping us all safe for all those years that you did. I'd also like to acknowledge your family uh, who have obviously been your rock. Uh, They've helped you through some pretty tough times. Um, But also, you know, they've obviously had their moments uh, with their dad and husband being a policeman, even though they probably don't – well, they wouldn't remember it – but you've obviously missed, would you have missed some uh, fairly significant family milestones? I imagine you would have. Yeah, some, but I think. In your 28 yeah, years? Yeah, <laughs> I think everyone in the job does, uniform as well, everybody does. Um, you work public holidays. Yeah. I, I think I did a couple of Christmas days and some New Year's days. Oh, yeah. And, and look, it wouldn't have been easy for him, but I just do want to acknowledge your family uh, and we appreciate the fact that you and your colleagues and the, I suppose the police in general put the safety of the community um, before their own, which, and thank goodness that's been formally recognised. Uh, I just hope you feel very proud of your career and what you've achieved and uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Norrell. If I could, I'd like to make a shout-out to... Um, yeah, sure. The uniform members who attended the Cochrane's Road scene. Oh, yes. Tell us about Gary Silk. You said that you don't believe that he's really been acknowledged and remembered for what a great copper he was. Tell us about him. Yeah, well, everybody knew him, thought he was a great guy and a, and a really good friend. And um, well, we, we travelled overseas a few times together and load of funny stories there. Gary's full of funny stories. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I just I just think of that incident in Cochrane's Road. He was a very confident operator, Gary. Very smart, yeah. switched on. Yep. And I think that coward Rob has just got the jump on him. And ever since then he's he's only sort of portrayed in the media as a victim when he was a Yes. Very good and very brave and very good detective at St Kilda CIB. Um, mm. But also I was going to say that I didn't go to that scene. I was working that night at St Kilda, but I didn't go to that scene. The uniform members who went, and there must have been 20 of them, they must have arrived at the worst possible scene that anyone in the police force could possibly imagine. You're right. And they did a red-hot job and... What bothers me is that they were never celebrated for it. In fact, they got the opposite. They were vilified by some and held up in court as liars, put on the front page of the paper as, as liars. I understand it's the legal system. Uh, they have to question these people, that sort of thing. But I don't, I don't remember the department ever coming out and saying, well, actually, these people did a really good job. And I went, I went to both trials. I heard all the evidence. Um, such important evidence uh, um, with someone's dying, the evidence they give has to be so well um, so well preserved and presented and they did all that um, mm-hmm. and yet the department might not have been able to say anything during the trials but they certainly could have after and I think some of them aren't too happy about their treatment and I don't blame them. Mm. 
I'm sure there would be, and I don't know, but I'm sure there would have been police that attended that scene or had involvement in that scene that were never able to return to policing or just couldn't do it after after um, what they experienced with that uh, incident or with that investigation. In fact, I know of a couple that left policing. So, um, yeah, those ones that went to that scene, you're right, I, I cannot imagine. Um, I remember when Wall Street happened, um, the thought of that scene and the police that attended after that, I, I just can't imagine the grief and the trauma. Oh, my goodness. Well, of course you go through that, but then you get kicked in the backside afterwards for a great job that you did. And that's, that's what's wrong about police work yeah. sometimes. The better you do, yeah. the more people you catch, the more criticism you get. And there, could, there really got, ought to be a different system. Yeah. And, I mean, that's, you know, we could all go and hide in, a, in an office somewhere and never get in any trouble and um, earn the same money. But Yep. Yeah, that's right. And so you said uh, that uh, Gary was a, uh, I didn't know him, uh, but you said that he was a great investigator. He just had that. Did he just have that? Some people are just born with it, aren't they? They just seem to be able to, they fall over crooks. Uh, you know, they just have that, oh, I don't know what it is, an attraction, a connection. They just know where the crooks are, know how to treat them, talk to them. You know, they I've only come across, I reckon, one or two investigators that I felt were that good. Well, he was very intelligent. And he had a, mm. an understanding of the law, an understanding of people, and he did some some good jobs on his own. But they all get they get forgotten, uh, understandably so, because he was such a, a famous victim. But no, he, he wasn't just a good guy, and lots of people will say that he's very popular. Mm. But he was also um, a good operator, and um, and it's, it's always a shame, but. It's a shame when, to me, when people aren't recognised for other things than just being a victim. Mm. Mm. In fact, his brother has gone on to become uh, a great advocate, hasn't he, for uh, Ian Silk? What did what did what does he do now? I've forgotten, but I know he's a great advocate now for uh, police for mental health, isn't it? He's he's done a lot. Yeah, well, he was. Um, he ran Australian Super, a very high-profile position. I think he now works at Crown Casino on the board. So he's a, he's a very high-profile businessman, a great fellow. His brother Peter's a great fellow. Um, yeah. Um, Carmel Miller has done a lot um, in the public sector too. She's Gee, has she ever? Mm. Yeah, she's she's worked for the parole board. Yes, yeah, she has, and she's also uh, a, a great victim ag- advocate. Um, That's right. Yes. Was she on Victims of Crime? The she, I think she was on the board or something. But yeah, you're right. She's um, gone on to become uh, celebrated in her own right, recognised. Yep. 
an amazingly strong woman, and I'm not close to Carmel at all. I've only met her a few times, but um, she's an amazingly strong, strong woman. Yeah. Well, I I suppose uh, I'd just like to finish that with saying that, uh, as you say, for all those police that did go to that scene that were so affected, you know, you're not forgotten and I hope that you're being looked after and I hope that um, you've managed to, you know, you can never put that stuff behind you but you can try and put it aside, I suppose. And, yeah, it's tough stuff but to all those police that went, we don't forget you. And one final plug, Narelle, if I could, the uh, Police Veterans Victoria. Absolutely. One of the only organisations that look after probably the only organisation that looks after um, veterans and it's all privately run, privately funded. Mm. Labor government promised $800,000 publicly and then reneged, Mr Andrews. Um, They do a wonderful job and the Police Association have always been a big supporter of the association and I hope all new members think the same. Yeah, you're right. I suppose what we're saying there is the support is there um, sometimes you don't realise, but there is a lot of support, particularly, as you say, through PVV, the Police Veterans Victoria. Uh, but the Police Association, well, they do an amazing job as well. So, uh, yeah, the support's there. Use it. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Okay, Cam. Any more plugs? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll keep run out of boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, look, thank you again. Thanks very much, Cam. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, and for me too. Thanks, Nora. Thank you. As you've probably noticed, we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's the right expression, I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. (laughs) Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks. we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.